Hello, everyone, and welcome to Entangled. In this episode, I interview my friend Casey Lott. In this conversation, Casey discusses her relationship with art and creativity as a source of authenticity and self-expression. We dive into the repressive religious and familial environment in which she grew up and how childhood trauma led to Casey asking big questions at an early age. We get into a number of her experiences living in LA and how those experiences helped her to become the woman she is today. Finally, we discuss Casey's definition of metaphysics, her use of tarot cards, and her experiences with transdimensional entities. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm here with the lovely and lucky Casey Lott. Casey, how you doing? I'm good. Well, Casey, why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Well, I'm an artist and a little bit of a small business entrepreneur. And I have a shop, and I do esthetician services. I mainly work one-on-one with clients because that seems to bring me more joy, and it's a calm environment working that way. And then I, lots of fun paintings that I sell privately. That's really fun. And I study metaphysics uh, for fun as well. So it sounds like a lot of um, the professional path that you've taken has been around creativity and art. And so I'm curious to know how you initially connected with that as a recurring theme in your life. Well, I was 18 years old and I went to a house party in Dallas and I walked in and all of the furniture was on cinder blocks in, in the whole, in the house. And I was like, what, who, who lives here and what's happening? What's going on? And then each room was like more original art and artist, um, whether they were making music, writing poetry, painting artists, phenomenal painting artists, uh, underground musicians, rap musicians, really kind of opened my eyes to a whole different scene and type of artwork that I had ever seen before. And really, after meeting these people, you know, I became friends with the people that lived in the house and learned that it was three brothers that were artists. And I, I really had a revelation when I walked in the house that I knew that that was something that I was going to do for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. So how did you kick things off? Well, I figured the practical approach at 18 years old was to become, I, I really liked makeup artistry and fashion, mm-hmm. and I was drawn to that type of career because I think personally in my life, mm-hmm. there was a lot of hardship in my family growing up. So being able to dress in a certain way that made me feel better was a type of healthy escapism and healthy creativity. I don't think I realized it at the time, but I knew I was really attracted to making myself look and feel different than the way that I did at the time. So there's that. (laughs) And is that what brought you to LA originally? So the original goal was to go into makeup artistry and become a makeup artist. And I did have some lofty ideas at 18. I had stated pretty early that I wanted to move to California and become a makeup artist and, you know, support myself financially was the overall umbrella goal. I didn't have any attraction to being famous or well-known or creating product or anything like that. I just wanted to really master the craft. I enjoyed meeting people 
different types of people because that was a learning experience for me because I didn't go to college. So I really was very thirsty to meet lots of different types of people one-on-one, face-to-face that close. And when you work with people that closely, they tend to tell you lots of things that are personal. So for me, it was this deep education of humanity. And what is it that interests you about humanity? I wanted to see how other people were living because I didn't like the way my life and my family was. So I was very curious how I could change things or not change things by having a different experience. And how how do you have a different experience? Can I have a different experience? You know, how did you get to your experience? Is that, can I do that? Can I not do that? So it was really just a question, overall question. I didn't even know if it was even possible at that point. So that's why I was really interested. And then when did you decide to get into painting? Well, the artists that I had met when I was 18 were very intimidating because they were really, really good. <laughs> and they're still very, very good. And they're all artists. I just thought they were genius artists. And so I would dabble a little bit here and there. And they would show me some things from time to time. But really was too scared to express myself at that age. I had a big personality, but just terrified of expressing more of that. There was I grew up in a very religious household and... There were some pretty strict rules of what was okay to be expressed personality-wise and, and what wasn't. So I sort of kept all of that. I, was, I knew that I was creative, but I just more or less focused on makeup artistry and sort of mastering that art first. And then somewhere when I started gaining success and confidence in Los Angeles, I did end up in Los Angeles doing having a career as a makeup artist, I had extra cash to buy art supplies, which is expensive. (laughs) And I had actually a garage to work in there, which is a little unheard of as well. So Mm -hmm. I had some space and that's when I really started experimenting and just, you know, just throwing money straight down the garbage with every (laughs) every piece that I made for several years (laughs) and just sort of went away on my own and, and did it. By myself, you know, being in, in the presence of other people that are really great artists, it's tough to sometimes create around them because really you want to watch them to absorb the knowledge and then sort of apply it on your own later. So I didn't start doing art probably until I was around 28. And then I don't think I started even getting more serious or the confidence around it, probably around the same time I got confidence in my success of career with makeup artistry. Mm. So I would say around 30, early 30s, 31, 32. And do you think the success that you'd had as a makeup artist helped to give you that confidence that, hey, I could be successful in painting as well? Yes, I think the confidence that I had, I don't necessarily think it was because I was a good makeup artist or better than other makeup artists. I felt confident that my work ethic was that I would do anything and everything to be the best artist. So I was working two or three jobs. I was like doing body painting on the side for fun, creating these photo shoots. Anything I could get my hands on, it didn't matter if it paid or it didn't pay. I was very interested in just being creative in in all areas that I could with makeup artistry. So I did on-set location. To me, I think the confidence didn't come necessarily 
from the money or any type of recognition other than the fact that I had proved to myself that I was like this really diligent hard worker and that I was really committed to this subject and this area that I wanted to master. So I think Mm. I got the confidence from that. And uh, so Casey's actually got a beautiful piece in my living room here. Casey, what are the dimensions of that? That might be a 36 by 36 or something like that. Okay. And then there's two pieces, so it's a diptychs. Yeah, and so it's it's very large for those who might not be in the art world like myself. Have you always worked in the larger format, or have you experimented with different sizes? Well, as I started to continue experimenting with becoming a painting artist, the more confidence I gained with my work, it kept growing to get bigger and bigger. And I teach this class called Go Big Art, and it's it's really cool because... People feel safe to try things on a very small level, on a small scale. So if you're going to go in and take a little painting class by numbers, you know, they want that a little five by seven or an eight by 10. And my classes, I roll out a six foot by five foot unprimed canvas for everyone in the class. And I teach them how to make a large piece of art. And it's terrifying. It's just the vulnerability of being self-expressed and trying something new that you may not be good at is it's just simply terrifying. And so for me, the challenge in going bigger with my art was terrifying. So I was like, well, I have to do that. (laughs) I mean, why not? (laughs) So yeah, that's why. And now everything that I make is, is large. Uh Yeah. It's hard for me to make anything under that five foot, six foot, by five foot, six foot, uh-huh. all of that type range. Is that because it feels too restrictive? Yeah, probably. Now it mm-hmm. does. Yeah, I think it does. I feel confined. I'm like, it could be bigger. It's just fun mm-hmm. to make really giant artwork. It's very challenging to take an idea in your mind and make it bigger than the idea in your mind mm. on Print like draw. I, you know, I can hand draw fun things and things like that. And it's like, oh, I want to do this, but then when you get to a canvas that's so large, like I watch people that make murals, and I'm I'm just fascinated. And there's so much math and things like that involved. Uh-huh. I'm not a scientist, but <laughs> it seems really mathematical. I just I just find it fascinating. I'm in awe of people that can create things on that level of scale. Yeah, it really is fascinating and beautiful. I wonder, you talked about growing up in a pretty strictly religious household, and do you think that has any influence on your desire to not be restricted in your art? Maybe. I I think that's probably a common thread or theme in my entire life, is I really value authenticity and self-expression because I felt so suppressed you know, until I left my parents' house, 18 or whatever. So through religion and things like that, I felt a lot of shame. I felt, like I said, there was sort of some clear guidelines. Like if you're a girl, you can be pretty, you can be witty and funny, but you can't be smarter than men, or you can have a certain level of education, but you still need to be very submissive. You know, just a lot of these like unspoken rules and guidelines that I obviously inherently knew were not what I wanted to be or didn't think was fair or, or my personal choice, what have you. So I think that's a common thread through my whole life is, you know, I don't personally like Madonna as a singing artist, but I do really like the fact that she reinvents herself all the time, that there's that challenge of 
oh, maybe I'll express myself like this for a while, you know, and you see these big clear changes in her self-expression and that's something I super respect. I mean, I don't like her music, but whatever, it doesn't matter because she's being self-expressed the way in which she chooses. So I find value in that. And I think that a lot of people really turn to art and creativity in general as a form of self-expression. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, like how you talk about, you know, doing something that's creative, but still maybe coloring inside the lines a little bit, like as a makeup artist and then evolving in terms of the breadth of your expression and authenticity. And I noticed similar things for myself, right? Like starting initially as going into business, you know, starting an investment shop, like very still creative. I still have loved every minute of it, but now, you know, doing this and talking about talking about spirituality and, and, and space and aliens. Like it's not the kind of stuff that I would have felt comfortable doing earlier in my life. What's the, the guy, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like sort of setting yourself up with some certainty that you feel that you can feed yourself and things like that. And then, okay, I got a little playroom of now I have some space in my mind and my, in my heart that I can look at things differently and I can challenge certain things because there is a certain level of gain security there with yourself. So yeah, it's probably something around like that seems to make sense. I haven't studied his work specifically, but it, it makes sense from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me as well. So you talked about how now you're a a student of metaphysics and you grew up religious, but didn't really resonate with that specific environment. And so first question would be, how would you define metaphysics? And then two, how would you compare it to religion? Cool. First question answer is I consider metaphysics, the study of science, philosophy, psychology, combined with the study of religion as well. So I think it's a combination. That's the way I understand it. And then what was the second question? (laughs) And how would you compare metaphysics with religion? And maybe more specifically, organized religion. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, my journey with leaving a, a Southern Pentecostal church upbringing, I felt that all these things happened and by the church's definition or the religion that the branch of religion that I came from was if you're a bad person, then bad things happen to you essentially. And, you know, there was death of a sister, there was abuse of physical abuse in the household and things like that, that it was like, how, what did I really do that was so bad to deserve this? So you're, you're having that conversation at a very young age. Well, my, I think my sister's, Death at 14, she was very much like a mother mother figure as well because I was the youngest of the three girls. I think this altered the course of my life. I don't think that I would be who I am hadn't I had that type of experience so early that I started asking big questions at 14, which is what is the meaning of life and who is God? And, and are, is God isn't me? Am I part of that? Or am I separate and I have to go through... Jesus and all these things to get to God and is that just is that true and then you have these family members that drill into you that only your family will love you and no one else in the planet will love you as much as your family but these are also people that you know are causing such pain in your life as well so 
combined with that and this, my sister's death, it was like big questions early at, at 14, 15 years old. I was very interested in finding out more information around that. So arriving in Los Angeles, it was pretty quick to get into a spiritual world. And there's a lot of metaphysics thrown around. There's a lot of, of a lot of things in Los Angeles being thrown around. <laughs> so I was, I was very curious to see which ones I liked and which ones I didn't. So when I first started out, it was that I don't believe in God or I dislike God. I think, I think I went from just being like atheist, like no God. And then I think I went to agnostic, which is like maybe, maybe not undecided sort of thing. And then I really started reading about other religions, Buddhism, just being involved in, I started attending Agape Church, which was really fun because it, it was cool the way he talked about Christ's energy as opposed to like Christ the man and this whole like procedure you had to go through to get to God. It was more like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And I was like, oh, let's hear about this little bit of everything. So I, I really enjoy his, his work. And then I started studying. I just tried to get into, you know, if any seminars were happening, Marianne Williamson, I went and studied her stuff. I read A Course in Miracles Studied that. I am discourses. Got into that, which is super cool. I did the Tony Robbins thing. Okay. Somebody gave me some tickets, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I can see where he's going with that. I, I like all that too." I was just very open minded. I was just very interested, and then I started doing some formal therapy, and then that's when I realized that I had physical abuse and this level of trauma, which you're just you just assume all kids have that experience. So um, I got to really look at my world in a new way there and make some decisions, some adulting decisions that were pretty cool. And I think I'm still studying, you know, different types of religion. And the Tibetan book of living and dying, uh, someone turned me on to pretty early. And I was like, mind blown about that as well. Mm -hmm. So I think I came around full circle to really appreciate Christianity and love Christ energy. And I just, I feel like now I, I came like a full circle, but it was like a tear up. Like I got to spiral up mm -hmm. and I'm glad that I didn't stay in that space of like, I'm against it because I was really against Christianity for a while. And then it really kind of all led back to like, Oh no, all of it is working in your favor. All of it is going. So it was fun to go down that path. And I still, you know, study some of those things as well. Yeah. I'm still kind of in it. Of course, I feel like I had this moment, like this big boom where all of a sudden it was like, that's what I was studying all the time. Every book, every minute I was just like immersed, which is kind of where I feel like you are. Oh, you're yeah. just like submerged <laughs> in it. You're like, and what else? And you're already signed up for seminars like 18 months out. And I had that moment where it was just several years of my life. I pursued it. And then then it kind of calmed down because I answered some of the main questions and sort of settled into what I thought was best for me, what I wanted for my life and my truth, as they say, the new, the my truth is. I'm, I'm on board with that. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> okay. That was beautiful. That was really well said. I'm curious, do you have like a, a daily spiritual practice or meditation practice or is it kind of just as you're feeling it? I feel that... It, it really is when I when it when I look at 
religion and I look at rituals and I look at spirituality, it's all about creating the rituals for yourself that work for you. So if I've had a bummer day or a stressful day, there are things I know I need to go home and do. Light the candles, dim the lights, put on you know a sound bath and or get into bed and read that book that I know that takes me into a good place or make some art because I find that I'm really in a meditative space when I'm painting. I get into a space. So sometimes there's areas of creativity that it's that big boom and, you know, hardcore rap is playing because I'm like in it and I'm like running around these paintings and I'm like really feeling it and I'm super up. And then I bring it way down because there's a lot of the very detailed filling in work. And then my brain really goes into a meditative state of just like that monotonous type work. And so all of creative, anything that I'm doing really creative lands as a spiritual practice for me. It may or may not for other people, whatever. So there's things like that that I try to be in as often. I have a friend that always says, like, when it comes to making art, it's in the doing, not the result. And so sometimes in society, it's challenging because, you know, art supplies can be several hundred dollars. I'm like, I really want this painting to turn out or whatever. And then I have to let all of that expectation go and just be in it and just do it. It's the doing that really makes the difference, that makes me happy, that brings me joy and settles me into an area of peace. So, yeah, there's a lot of fun rituals. But mostly it's like reading books, seminars, podcasts. I go for these things called prayer walks. And I usually am listening to something and walking. And, like, I'm processing my life and applying where it is now. I do read tarot cards. I studied under clairvoyant for a year, some years past. I was like, hmm, sometimes I get these uh, downloads of information about people. Am I supposed to tell them or not tell them or... Sometimes I can I have dreams of predicting things that will happen in my life or to other people. And so I was very curious about that. So I kind of sought out someone that things sort of line up when you have the question like that person to answer that question usually shows up. So I went down that. And so now if I have some questions, I find I have several different types of cards, like angel cards and different things like that. I can pull them out and give myself these readings mm-hmm. And I feel, okay, I have, a, I have a sense of where I'm going, what's, what this is, and what if, if there needs to be some adjustments in energy and things like that. Yeah, so that's part of my ritual practice. Yeah, those are a couple things. Uh-huh. And would love to learn a little bit more about tarot cards. Could you explain first what tarot cards are? I mean, I don't know if I'm the person that can give you the the doctrine on all of it (laughs) i can tell you what my my experience is is there's all different types of this medium to be used there's some psychics out there that really really have some skills and some talents i think for me it was wanting to kind of understand a little tap into that world a little bit the one thing that I thought was super cool about reading cards or getting information of other people's org field is you want to ask permission first. So a lot of times I would get information and I would just kind of like blurt it out because I was excited that I got it. It was like a fun thing because I was practicing the skill of being able to do that. And then now I don't do that anymore. I don't like embark on people's org field. You can tell when someone wants you to give them answers to something. So I wait for them to come to me in so many senses. So when it comes to reading tarot cards, you're 
the way I understand it is you're really just reading that person's possibility. Everybody has a sliding scale of possibility that they range of what can be created. So you can read your highest denominator or your lowest denominator of what is possible that you're going to create because there's so many things that could be created in your future. And, and so what do you not mean just, highest denominator, like most likely? So like your highest vibration versus your uh, lowest vibration uh, like, of creating. Like good, good energy basically versus negative energy. Right. Okay. So if, if something's like your highest possible outcome, that's your high energy of what you could could go out and create versus like we have habits and things, you know, we all have two sides of the coin. So we we start looking at, okay, Mm, is this a repeat pattern? You know, oftentimes we catch it after we've done that repeat pattern. <laughs> the goal is to catch it before and try to make new choices. So cards can kind of help you catch your patterns or realize what your patterns are, things like mm-hmm. that. So when when I'm reading cards, I will, if there's something like just something very destructive or negative. I don't read people's lowest denominator, lowest possible outcome. Mm. I always read their highest possible outcome because what would be the point? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. to me, there's no point to read your your lowest possible outcome because yeah. I want to create more possibility for you sure. because that's my intention and that's my integrity. So some people do mm. have this talent and, they, and that skill and they do read lowest possible outcomes and I made a commitment, you know, in my study to not do that. Hmm. So I read people's highest possible outcome. Will it happen? Hopefully, if mm-hmm. it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily matter. It's really just a tool to create your mind to create more energy for what you want. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not the exact thing that I that comes up in the cards that is possible for your future, that it gets your wheels going mm-hmm. of opening your mind like, oh, maybe somebody just offers you, you know, your cousin could offer you this job or your, you know, something like that rather than people just looking down one line that the the only happiness and result can come from this one way. So it's really just to open your mind up is what I use tarot cards for. There are so many different levels to this. Legit, there are so many levels that I don't even understand. Mm -hmm. They're so, it's, it's really a fascinating world I sort of got in there and played around and figured out what I like it for as mm-hmm. a tool in my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. I will read for other people sometimes. You read and for me that one time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that was maybe when we first met. Uh-huh. I think I used a deck of cards because I you did. Yeah, I tend to be able to read. I don't really need the cards physical. I can read bl- read it blind. Mm-hmm. But there's so I've I've learned to do it with cards and. You can do runes with the, which I think they're called runes. Those little stones. There's mm-hmm. the Tao Te Ching. There's so many different types of talisman tools mm-hmm. to stimulate another person to be able to read another person's auric field. And there's like layers of energy to the auric field. So that was fun to study. Barbara Batterman, I think, is the woman that teaches. I think she has a school. In Florida that she teaches Reiki. She's like mm-hmm. a super Reiki master. And when I first moved to L.A., I had picked up one of her books and read the textbook. And it was about energy and auric fields. And I knew that I was a person that absorbed other people's energy really readily. So I wanted to understand how can I create my own energy and not take on other people's. And that's something mm-hmm. I still struggle with daily now. Especially with the work that I do, 
that I take, I, you know, work so close with people. So I actually need a lot of time alone. I'm, people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm an extreme introvert. I have to have a lot of time alone to process the amount of energy that I take on from other people. But wow. that's also the skill from trauma that I learned. My brain is like spider webbed, reads the room really well mm-hmm. for safety. Mm-hmm. So it was something it's like, again, that other side of the coin, it's like there's trauma and abuse there. But the thing that I learned from it was, oh, I have like these kind of special skills that I get to use in my everyday life that help me go forward and create more and new things that I want to create. And I would guess that it probably helps make you a more compassionate person. Um, let's hope so. I mean, <laughs> ZZ's girl. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think my overall commitment to humanity is to utilize all my capabilities and my talents and my skills that have been naturally given with my personality mm-hmm. that I was born with and to use those for the betterment of humanity and, and community that I'm around which is obviously through kindness and compassion. So let's hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some people that are like, nah, it didn't, it didn't work, but <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> so you talked about the interaction with music and painting when you're creating your art. And I'm curious, how do you feel those art forms intermingle? I, I think they're the same thing. I think... Art, music, math, science, I think all those things are coasting on a a plane, all parallel. I think they're all the same thing. Philosophy, abstract thinking, for some reason they all land for me as the same thing. So one's just going to stimulate the other, Mm -hmm. which is why I like more than just a few types of genres of music. I, I try to listen to just everything to open my mind up. You know, for a while it was like, oh, I'm only listening to weird sound baths, Indian, blah, blah, blah. And then and then I'll put it on one day and I'll be like, ah, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> but I was in it for a minute and I created some art and then I'm out and then I'm done with that. And so I'm always like looking for other ways. It's like, how do those things resonate with me and what can I create with the combination of those things? But yeah, I feel uh-huh. like art and music are basically the same thing. As you talk about the importance of, or the, I guess, interaction of art and science, and I think about entrepreneurship, right, which is also where you've been very successful, I think that also kind of gets that same element of creativity, but also logic and reasoning and figuring things out and creating legal structures or whatever it may be. And to me, one of the things that I've noticed amongst my friends is that when people are happiest, it often is at times when they're able to leverage both sides of the, both sides of the brain, right? Yeah, I in some aspects I identify with like the struggling artist and then in some aspects I just don't. Like I can't get on board with the starving artist identity program because I love results and there's nothing better than being an artist and getting results. Mm-hmm. And that really is is like you have to have a structure and a a plan of how you're going to create something and break it down and have it done on time and things like that and holding yourself accountable. So it really is both sides of the brain that give you that awesome result. Because if I just go too much into this lofty, I know the boheme free spirited girl with the t-shirt line on the beach is like, that's beautiful. Like do whatever you want. But I often run into these girls 
and they just seem lost. It's like they think there's that they're only supposed to be always in their creative mode and that side of the brain and just and that's where I'm supposed to be and that's where I feel so free. I feel really free there too, but then you do have that pulling of like wanting results. <laughs> like you want results of producing your self-expression however you want to do that in the world and it will take filtering that creativity through your logical brain to have it in the world that other people can see it. Mm-hmm. You can be full of ideas. Mm-hmm. Kanye, I got some ideas, Facebook or whatever he had said. Right. Yeah, we all have like amazing ideas. It's like in the struggle of you being able to produce you, your own thing without that level of support mm-hmm. that you really get that joy, that mm-hmm. real joy. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing you really, for me, I really don't value things that I haven't earned, you know? And so earning it is that I figured out how to make a career in art, and then I made some more art that I could fund, you know, I could pay for the supplies and the materials, and then I physically built it. And then I then I figured out how to sell it to people that love art, you know? Yeah. And that just that whole process, that is more meaningful. Or you can be in your basement the genius artist just making all these masterpieces. And I'm not saying that there's not people that just want to do that and they're satisfied uh-huh. with that. I think you totally should because I'm not Michelangelo. Maybe that's what that dude wanted to do and that was his prerogative. But to me, having other people see your self-expression, not in a scale of, of that it makes me feel significant other than it makes it just brings me joy that it brings other people joy, right? I don't want to make it just to be successful or anything like that. I want it to have like a real connection with, with other people. So filtering that creativity through your logical brain to have a result Mm -hmm. is super important in being creative. What's kind of messed up about art today, right? Is that it's all still structured around capitalism is the central piece of it. Right. And when you talk about, you want your art to resonate with someone, I think that is one objective way of measuring success but if your art's not measuring resonating rather with the right crowd of wealthy people or the trendsetters in the art world that say it's good Mm -hmm. then you can't i mean you can't live in modern society right you still have to make money and support yourself and support a family and what have you yeah so you should get a job I guess what I'm saying. I get it. I get it. Like some people don't like some of the art that's out there and they're way ahead of their time. Should they still make art? Absolutely. Should they not make art just because it doesn't sell? No way, dude. Like sit in your basement and make art all day and also be a functioning person in society. Just because somebody doesn't agree with something that you hold valuable or take so personal also doesn't mean that you don't have to be in the world altogether. Because everyone is experiencing rejection on some level about something that's important to them. And it's not just you as a a painting artist with that thing. You know what I mean? So I think... (laughs) I know. I don't know. So funny. (laughs) Yeah. So I think people should be making their art Uh for sure. Uh I, I don't find as many people like what you're describing in the art culture as much as I find people with the pressure of being popular or significant Mm -hmm. that they choose an identity of self sort of degradation to prove that they're a real artist, like their work isn't selling and they also won't get a job and their life is just stressful. I mean, you can make a lot of, you can create a lot of things 
out of pain. And it is not promoted enough in the world that a lot of creativity can come from extreme joy as well. Mm-hmm. So right now I find that culture is addicted to people creating art out of pain and you can just as well create all kinds of really fun stuff. I mean, that's is why my paintings are like bright and fun. And like, I really yeah. enjoy creating things from joy. Yeah. That I emotion. I resonated with your artwork. Yeah. It's like that, you know, again, that commitment to, trying to produce that highest level of energy that I can. I want to put that in the world. I can put the pain stuff too. I mean, everybody loves a good cry song and all that. We need those. Let's not take those out. But I don't want to live in that space, and I don't want to attach an identity to it either, that, oh, I'm this real artist because I I have a bunch of dark art. I have a bunch of dark sculptures and pieces, and I think they're just as beautiful as my light art, and I think I got satisfaction and process of more peace and joy by moving some of that energy out of my body and putting it somewhere and be like, yeah, that's how I feel about that. And then you can walk away from it and be done with it. And you don't have to keep re-experiencing it over and over again. So yeah, I tend to find more artists that are attached to the identity of this is my work and it's so good and the world doesn't like it. And so I'm going to like double down and I'm not going to work and I'm going to live this starving artist life. And it's like, Oh, that old song again. Like let's just get through that because you can still, I mean, I think I worked at a makeup counter for $11 an hour and was, you know, whatever I could find scrap tools of to make art. I did. It doesn't mean I'm going to stay at making $11 an hour when somebody offered me a promotion, like, so I can stay in that, I'm an artist, the whole thing. Like, I don't have time for that. (laughs) You can be a successful artist and you don't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death your entire life to be a great artist. You can be a great artist and be joyful and thankful and be in the world. You don't have to hide away in a basement either. I mean, unless that's what you really want to do, do whatever you want, you know? (laughs) I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about your time in LA and what is the culture like in LA? You know, what are the pros and cons specifically within the art community there? Mm, I mean, there's so much. I had a really great experience in Los Angeles for 10 years. And now that I'm gone, it's fun to think about that all the things happened because all the things that have happened because so much happened, you don't necessarily process it all at the same time. It's a faster paced moving environment. So now that I'm in Colorado and it's more chill, it's like, oh wait, did all that happen? I was like, whoa, it's it's really fun to reflect on. I personally had a really good experience. I run into people that it's dramatically one of the two. It's like, oh man, like LA's amazing. I loved it. I can't can't wait to go back, sort of thing. And then the other is like man, people like, they're so fake and they're jaded and like da-da-da-da. And so I I know when I meet these people from having that decade of experience there that those people didn't become or accomplish what they wanted to in that city. And it's a monster. It's like any major, major city in the world. Paris, you know, New York, any major city where you have to, it's highly competitive You have to be flexible. You have to be able to learn and want to succeed, not at the cost of other people, but simply at the the fact that you're willing to give up resistance 
to look at what it takes to be who you want to be. To me, it was more about me becoming the woman that I wanted to. Like, I felt like I showed up in LA as a girl and then I left as a woman. <laughs> Drop the mic, put the check in the bank and move to Europe for a while. And it was, to me, all about the game that I was playing with myself. I wasn't playing a game with other people. But it is I mean, it's a circus, so there's a lot of tempting elements and factors. And so a lot of times, if that's where you are in your journey of life, of being tempted and going down those roads, as more important than your commitment to yourself of who you want to become as a person, then you're going to get got. Mm -hmm. It's going to get you. It's a monster. I always say that Hollywood eats people because... There's so many sparkly, shiny things, and you can change. It's really easy to give up your commitment to yourself of like morals or ethics, whatever you decide those are for yourself. So, yeah, LA was really fun because I got what I wanted out of it. I, I went there for career, I went there for self expression, I went there for hard work ethic, you know, all of those things I did. Friends and learning about the world, and then I got everybody I knew and respected in that city was well-traveled, had traveled the world. So I was like, that's something that I need to invest in because that's something that no one could ever take away from me. And, you know, I will always have those experiences and that knowledge of learning about other people and cultures in a way that I wouldn't have gotten in Midlothian, Texas. (laughs) 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 For sure. (laughs) But it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was fun. Part of what can be challenging for people in LA, especially after achieving certain levels of success, is that those types of uh, career paths can almost inherently drive you to um, have your validation be all driven by external third parties and how they view you and that kind of thing. And I think as everyone knows, if the moment your internal happiness becomes dependent on other people, you're done. So yeah. uh, it can be tough to maintain that kind of homeostasis as you're going through that transition, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think just referring back to what we were talking about earlier with my family, that it was so restricted, and I saw so much inauthenticity. Like, there was this level of pain behind closed doors, and then this very showmanship facade and smiles and all nods and like shaking hand, kids and babies kind of thing in the public that I inherently was built with like, I need that authenticity. I need that. That's something that I just knew that I needed. And so I saw it after that. So I think it might've been, you know, more helpful that I had that when I arrived to LA Mm -hmm. because a lot of things that I guess people would consider fake or what have you. Not that I didn't get distracted by people and at moments and just like, the shock factor, how could a person be like that or do that, you know? I think I did quite well. Most most of my friends I still have as friends, and I think they're very authentic people. So I had that intention of seeking. I sought after that, and so I think it really helped me as like an inner compass when I was there. And man, it would be very, very difficult if you are looking for your compass in that city. Mm. That would be tough. Yeah. Part of your journey. Yeah. So almost that childhood trauma you went through helped you mature at an earlier age than you would have otherwise. Yeah. (laughs) 
for sure. <laughs> I think I was I was doing pretty mature activities and like adulting at like 14, 15 years old. I was on my own doing life, making big decisions. Like when I was 18, like I said, I was I was a cheerleader for many years and so I, I very much kind of fit in like two worlds. I was very independent but also was like part of this sort of like cliché stereotype blonde cheerleader from Texas, that whole thing. And I, I liked cheerleading because it was fun. It was athletic and you got to be around girls. But I did not relate with any of the people that I was on my team with after my sister passed, after I was 14, 15 years old. I just didn't, I had a very hard time because I could see more of my world of what was going on, the shelter world. I just got more present. And so at, I think, 18 years old, we're all sitting around and we're talking and everyone is naming what college they're going to. And I thought about college. I thought about an art school maybe, but I knew they were, like, really expensive. And it also just didn't make sense to spend that kind of money on something I didn't know that I for sure wanted just yet and things like that. So I knew that I wanted to be a makeup artist and that that was something that I wanted for real. And I said, oh, I'm going to move to Los Angeles and be a makeup artist and every girl was like shocked face. Like, first of all, who told you we were allowed to make those kind of choices independently of what our parents ha- told us we should do? Mm-hmm. Second of all, probably not going to happen, like on everyone's face. And I look back now, and I think I was always like that. And again, I think it, that was the, the benefits of growing up in such a suppressed environment mm-hmm. that I swung just all the way to the opposite direction. It was like, I need authenticity, self-expression, true to who you are, all of those things helped me make decisions at a very early age of what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was making big decisions early, for sure. And then the cool thing is, is that I actually saw them through, which is just wild because I look back some now and I'm like, oh, I have no idea how I accomplished. I have no idea how I got through. I think I I moved from Texas with $400. Uh Uh-huh. And I was in my mind, in my 21-year-old mind, I was like, oh, that's plenty of money. <laughs> like, that's totally enough money. $400 is like, <laughs> I look back now, that, that $400 is pretty quick. Uh. It quickly gone, and I, yeah, I was like, I was in it. And then I went from, yeah, and then I was in L.A., I think by 22. And yeah, but I still did everything that I wanted to do. So that's kind of cool. So, yeah, I think that's all from that family trauma stuff is just like that will because you're forced, you know, with that level of neglect and stuff. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of really high-functioning people in the world. I can see them running around. I can spot people that have that I have came from. You can see it in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say that community you grew up in was patriarchal overall? What does patriarchal mean? Very male dominant. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pentecostal religion is like, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard my mom say, well, the man is the head of the household. And like, you know, it's just like this known thing. And I also see with my family, the subtleties of it, that it's okay for men to be upset and angry, but not for women. But then you also get a lot of that in the South in general, or just women. You need to be not in like women that could like only talk in like the nice soft voice. And like, they're taught to do that because 
there she shouldn't be upset and that's not good and that whole thing like all just layers and layers of that with like girls and I remember when I came back from LA and I was in Europe yeah and then I was back in Texas and I was like working at a salon doing what I do and I, I was just talking to this lady and I was like oh so like what do you do and she was like honey I'm married and then I it was I hadn't been in Texas in like 17 years so my brain had to literally roll up and go backwards <laughs> so many you know what I mean it was like it was like a fruit roll up backwards I was like wait hold on I forgot that like that's a status in the south a goal that women aspire to is to be taken care of by a man which is where the little you know it's like the whole thing it's like no woman's going to get on the payroll with opinions <laughs> you know what i mean like you're you got to make your own money or if you want opinions you can't be <laughs> you know you got to be no opinionated at all to get in the little voice to get on that payroll kind of thing. And so in LA, even if you have money or independently or from family or what have you, it's still really cool. Most people are going to be like, well, this is my passion project and this is who I support. And this is what I'm um, creating in the world. And these are the people that I'm partnering with. Like people are there. It's not cool to just be sitting around doing nothing. Like it's very cool to be creating something positive in the world. And then I'm back in Texas of 17 years. And then I was like, right, that's a thing here. I forgot about it. So yeah, all kinds of like weird dub things like that from religion and each family is different and how far they go. My family comes from like Louisiana, Mississippi kind of Pentecostal. What does Pentecostal mean? I don't even know what it means. I mean, I know that it's a branch of, well, the extreme version of Pentecostal that you might know is where they're yelling and speaking in tongues. Like fire and brimstone. Fire, yeah, like God, the return of Jesus is at any second. Repent, repent, repent. You're like always under this amount of stress, a lot of shame, like incredible amount of shame. Definitely no sex, no nothing, don't do it, it's wrong, it's yeah. bad. Everything you want to think about doing, it's wrong and bad, Was don't do it. Was it also male-dominant? Always, always. The, the whole thing is, the whole thing is male-dominated for sure. But the wild part is, is that women subscribe to the role as an, as an honor as well. They're, they're on board with like, well, this is great because then I don't have to make the decisions and then it's not my fault. And, you know, you're not held accountable for anything. So people are signing up for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, well, if I just act right and I go to church, then good things will happen kind of thing. And it's like, it's just a very, very, very old story mm. that God's going to come down. Jesus is going to come down and save you. Not that there's not all sorts of beautiful spiritual dimensions that are helping us and supporting us, I personally believe, and have had those types of spiritual experiences where I've just, for me, I've seen them in rooms and known them to be true. I do think that we have that, but I also think we have a serious amount, of, we have power of choice. And so the Pentecostal religion, I think, mostly taught me that you don't have power of choice, mm -hmm. that your life is completely predestined mm -hmm. and predetermined, and you just have to be good enough to get it. 
<laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so it's like you're hoping you did a good enough job and then you'll go to heaven. So like the idea of that heaven and hell is existing now that you're creating your experience of, of those two worlds is not even in the realm. Mm. It's like it's happening to you and that's what you get. And then if you do a good enough job with what's happening to you, then you can go to a place that's better which I personally don't, I, I don't subscribe to. I think it's cool if we can take the energy that we've been given here, kind of like your dharmic lineage. Okay, if we can, whatever your journey may or may not be, we can obviously tell that there's different levels of awareness and consciousness walking around on the planet right now. So, you know, there's got to be some type of differences and I don't necessarily care to have the time to compare them because it doesn't do me any good to do that. But you can see that like my mother's awareness of who she is and what she's creating in the world is, is different than mine. And it doesn't mean that she doesn't have all the same emotions as me as like pain and fear and happiness and joy. She's, we still share those. So we're the same. And yet I don't see her graduating to self-responsibility of, of knowing that her choices are, are something that she's actually choosing. I don't see that happening and that's fine. I do see, I do see the difference of that religion causing that. So I've stepped out of that and I've also stepped out of participating with my parents. I mean, it's, I'm, I turned 40 this year and I think officially this year I like broke up with my mom as a relationship because it's just too toxic. And I think I broke up with my dad like maybe five or six years ago. And so like my whole life's journey is to giving up that guilt that I owe my parents something because that's what they taught me. And that I, I'm, my mother said, she, I'm losing blessings from the Lord because I don't honor my parents. And so that's something that's taught in that religion that I am to honor them it doesn't matter. My, I owe my life to them. It's a very parent-centric, narcissistic household. And if I'm not, I'm going to be punished from God. And so it's, I'm 40 years old, and I am still am working on giving up that shame and blame that has been taught through that religion, that I should be something other than what I feel is true to myself. So, yeah, it's it's... I, I wish that religion, there's all kinds of cool churches and stuff out there. Like, I don't want to bash church and religion because I think, like I said, I like, I went to Agape for many years and their Mile High Church here is a super cool, like, combo metaphysics type church. I dig it. Where I like churches that kind of co- combine religions together. But yeah, I think some of those stories of religion in the South are so old. They're just really, really outdated that it's superstition. It's just they don't, my mother doesn't read any other book than the Bible, and she only interprets the Bible the way the church tells her to. And I was reading Tibetan Book of Living and Dying when we were riding around doing something, and she said, you just, you don't need to do that. And I was like, I'm sorry, did you tell me I don't need to read books? Yeah. And she's like, you don't, you don't need to go asking bigger questions. You don't need to read other books like that about other religions because it's considered a sin. 
And <laughs> so then you're just like, okay, so like more knowledge is bad. It's just wild. And it's to keep you in that place. There really is. My mother really has the fear of my soul. She really has this fear that I'm going to go to hell if my soul is not saved. Mm. And I don't even remember what their definition of the soul being saved is anymore because I'm so far gone from that. But that fear for her is real. So I, you know, and it causes her pain, which makes me sad. But I can't subscribe to those old, you know, superstitious ideas anymore. So it's like a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a real bummer. Yeah. I mean, of course, because at the end of the day, they're still your parents, right? Yeah, you can't unlove your parents. I've like totally tried to do that. <laughs> I've like tried all the angles for that. And I think it's like the religion thing with Christianity. I came full circle. It's like I really, really, really love my parents. And I'm also not going to participate with you. So it's a combination of both now yeah. that... The coolest thing I learned in therapy was that I can be more than one emotion. I can be very, very sad about something in my life, like my pet dying or what have you. And then I can also have a lot of joy in this other area of my life with maybe it's I made a great new art piece or I have a great new friend or, you know, relationship or what have you. So you can you don't have to just be one emotion all the at a time. You could be we're multidimensional beings. So that's what I got from lots of therapy <laughs> which is cool and some other stuff uh, <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to throw her under the bus i got a lot of things from her but yeah so that's kind of my experience with the religion do you think there's any element of her being so afraid of what's going to happen to your soul is really her projecting her own fears of what's going to happen to her soul oh yeah i'm sure i'm yeah uh, yeah I don't see how that couldn't be intermingled in there. As a mama bear, you want to keep all your little chicks close to make sure that you know that they're getting fed and all the things. And so I've gone really far away. So it's the further I go away, it's harder for her to feel that guarantee and calm down that that fear. Yeah. I mean, they have fears that I'm gay. They have you know, for a while. they Because it was all like, they're too scared to ask because they don't want to know because then if they know, then that's a, a sin. And like, or and they had fears of, was I doing drugs? Well, I was doing drugs, but they weren't going to ask and they weren't going to help with it. They were just going to be at home praying because it was like, if we pray and we do that and we don't take action, God's going to handle it. So it's it's like, their their choice they don't realize that their choices of their inaction are also a choice it really is like this submissive way of being it's like this passive aggressive being it's like we're gonna pray about it and then the lord's gonna fix you and then in the meantime we're gonna be really scared we're not gonna totally be involved and we're not gonna do anything we're not gonna intervene because that's god's job and so it's this real separate way of being Hmm. not that prayers aren't valuable because prayer and energy and intention and what you're but if you're praying for another person to change that's far like less likely (laughs) to happen than if you're praying for yourself to change that there can be a different result so i think what you're praying is makes a really big difference (laughs) of what kind of result you're gonna get out of that you know where your energy is gonna go with that, and I think Reverend Michael Beckwith is the uh, Reverend of Agape. Mm-hmm. He always says, 
something to the effect of like what you're praying for, how you're, you know, what kind of questions you're asking. Like if you're asking the question why, hmm. that's just basically not going to get you anywhere. That's not, he calls that a not intelligent question. Hmm. If you're asking what is looking to emerge or become that you can surrender and be, give up resistance to, now you're, now you're in the game. Now you're going to create something. You're going to make something. Your energy is going to accelerate and expand. But if you're asking why, that's like a deduction of your energy. Yeah, It's going backwards. So hmm. I think I tried it as part of my spiritual practice to make sure I'm asking intelligent questions, looking for ways to constantly give up energy resistance to things. Because I get frustrated standing at the post office. That's like where my wrath of my human being ugliness comes out. It's <laughs> at the post office. That's like my arch nemesis of like to teach me how to be a nicer person on the planet. And so when I'm there, I really see how entitled I, I am, that it should be going this way. And this, my parents should be this way or life should be going this way, or I shouldn't be living out of my car and I should have this. All of that energy is just, I have all this exuberant amount of energy and it's just being pent up. It's just a resistance. To what is. That's something that Pentecostal religion was about. I think the name name of the game for me in my spiritual energy practice is where am I resisting? Giving up resistance. Game changer. Where am I resisting? And this is like a constant daily give up. Even when I'm tired and I'm at work and I got a lady asking me too much questions and I'm like, oh, I have to surrender in that moment and go with it. And just because the resistance is what's so exhausting, Mm -hmm. it's depleting my energy. If I give up the resistance and I'm going with it, I notice I have more energy in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly looking for ways that I can give up resisting energy. Mm -hmm. It's like a dam holding up. And then, and it, and your creativity too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I definitely, if I'm feeling, away about certain things all all upset about something it's very difficult for me to create art mm-hmm. and sometimes i have to force myself to to even open up that other part of myself that's not going with the flow mm-hmm. of things so that's why it's such a cool practice mm-hmm. anyways yeah that's some awesome. random thoughts yeah you were talking about the importance of questions and i first came across tony robbins probably like three years ago and he said something that I really thought about for a while that the quality of your life is the quality of your questions. Oh, cool. Yeah. When he first said that, I was kind of like, really? Like the, like your questions are that important and <laughs> that profound. But the more I've thought about it, the more I think he's onto something. Mm. Well, I, and I guess that goes back to the question that I had when I left Texas seeking out what type of person I wanted to become. I wanted to ask other people what do you like about yourself? And so that's how I got ideas of the type of woman that I wanted to become. Mm-hmm. Because what I had modeled to me in my youthhood, I, there wasn't very many women that I was like, wow. I mean, my Aunt Cindy's pretty top notch. Like she, she's got some really wowing features. 
and obviously there's other people, but I knew that there was that I wasn't supposed to be just like her. I was supposed to be like me, and I was supposed to be something even more than what Aunt Cindy was. And I hope my kids are more than what I am, you know, and that keep, you know, continues. So, yeah, I could see. I like that. He's got some good quotes out there. Mm. He's got he's got some good stuff. Do you think that community you grew up in is still as repressive today as when you grew up? Yeah, I do. Uh, maybe. I think it's evolved. I, it's evolved some. Mm-hmm. You know, because culture's evolved, gay people are ex- more readily accepted than they ever have been, which is soups cool. So hopefully the South isn't killing young boys in high school like they have been, you know, before. So I think it's more readily accepted, so stuff like that. But it was very difficult for me to go from Los Angeles for so long and then Europe and then back to Texas. It was shocking because I was like, wait, this is still the conversation that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, you're like, yeah, cool. Anything else? Nope. Jesus is Lord. You're like, all right, got it. Not not a whole lot changed, like just clinging to that. But then you also look at, and I think Tony talks about some of this, like your social norms and traveling, you see the social norms of conversations and things like that, that are repeated over and over again in certain areas. Uh, the social norms down there make people feel comfortable. They make people feel safe. And how to, you know, not always just get on board, but to question those. Well, Maynard James Keenan always said, think for yourself, question authority. And it's true. You have to because they might have just been asleep at the wheel accepting those social norms as well. So when I lived in Sweden, uh, my boyfriend at the time, if it was like raining and a sleeting with overcast which does there, like snow, rain, sleet, and no sun. They have no sun for a period of time. He would just be in a bad mood kind of thing. And I personally am a moon baby, so I could, like, the sun not being out there, it, like, didn't affect me. I (laughs) enjoyed it. I was like, I'm walking in this winter wonderland, and the big moon is out. I like nighttime. That's usually when I paint as well, so Mm -hmm. I have a good relationship with, with the moon. I like nighttime. For him, you know, that's a very common conversation. It's like, oh, the sun isn't out. It's a bad day. It's like, it's not a bad day. That's a social conversation that you've just gotten on board and are asleep at the wheel. You're not using power of choice there. And uh, he would, yeah, he would just say, oh, these, these are bad days. These are nasty days. And I was like, nah, these is regular days, just like all the other days. You can be happy on this day, just like yesterday when the sun is out. And for him, he didn't understand that. He really just was like, ah, you know, and say something in Swedish I didn't understand. And I was like, ah, <laughs> but it's, to me, it's true. It's like, you really, you really do get to choose what you want. What does it mean when you say you're a moon baby? Um, I like the moon. <laughs> I like, I'm attracted to moon energy. And I don't know if this is just from all the like things that I've read about having a lot of Scorpio element. And, and, you know, when it comes to Zodiac and stuff like that, I sort of dabble in that as well. Uh-huh. I think there's some people that really, really study it and have super cool, you know, more scientific information. Mm-hmm. I've personally enjoyed reading like a general synopsis of, of what they are. And then throughout my life, it's like this little mini research game that I do of seeing patterns of those personality types that go and link up. And so I have my own little register that I have tallying with those things. But I do see 
that especially with females and the tides of the water and our Mm -hmm. energy cycle and women that used to sleep outdoors when their Mm -hmm. cycle came and just like the history of it and being connected to the moon. But I think for me, being a moon baby is I... My exercise is walking like four to six miles several times a week, whether it's a hiking or thing or whatever. But I just enjoy, I did some research on walking and like, I just overall feel that it balances my mind and keeps my harmony, like my my body and my mind really balanced. Mm -hmm. I like doing physical, like more challenging activities, but walking for some reason like at a high pace for that, that amount of time, it really works. And so I tend to do this at night. And I've looked back, I've done this all over the world at night, which is like really dangerous. <laughs> and I should carry mace. And I've just done it for such a long period of time because it's quiet out. It's cooler. I enjoy cold weather. And you get this like glow of light in the air. It's like this lamp in the sky. I've just always liked it. And you mentioned Scorpio energy or something to that effect. And um, for me... I still uh, don't fully understand what is the difference between astrology and astronomy. Do you know the difference? Astrology, well, I think astronomy is like really the study of the planets and the stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. And that's like accepted by conventional science, right? Right. Like this is where this star point is yeah. and these are yeah. the... Con- these yeah. Are these, yeah. And then astrology is like the meaning that we give to astronomy. Mm. Is what I would say. Because people are meaning-making machines. Mm -hmm. We are meaning-making machines. And we apply the meaning. And we can choose whatever. But if there, it could be a social agreement or whatever, like we were talking about before. Like I said, I don't go too far down the rabbit hole. And, like, I've read some stuff that I'm like, dang, that's pretty good. And then I've read some stuff I'm like, none of that's true. Mm -hmm. So it's... I think it is open to interpretation. That's why I'm running my own little roster with it of what I think a Leo is or what I think. But I, I think I, I think it does get deduced down to the elements like water, earth. You know, when I meet certain people that I'm more attracted to personality-wise, they usually, like, have a lot of water elements to them which is like creative like this ebb and flow like the, they're curious what's that I, is it like the geisha japanese movie and the like the brothel Memoirs lady the yeah the brothel lady like looks at the little girl and is like too much water it's like mm-hmm. too emotional so it's like you're very sensitive so i think for me i have a lot of that water element and so that makes me very sensitive to other people's energies and mine or whatever so i think that i think it you know, it may not necessarily be like Scorpio versus Cancer or whatever, but I know that I'm attracted. Like, I can get around certain water elements, and I'm like, yeah, Pisces, yeah. I just, it rings true. And then Earth elements, you know, so I think it kind of comes down to more of those things that I see more patterns with rather uh-huh. than specifically. Because there's a lot of stuff in your wheelhouse, the people that know how to read that really correctly, but you have like a house categories. <laughs> and so you have lots of like your sun sign and your moon sign and you'll have, so I'm a, like a Libra sun sign, but I have five or six houses of Scorpio. Like I'm a lot of air and a lot of water. And then you're, I'm going to be a different I mean, you're a different personality around a lot, all different people, yeah. you know, just based on your one-on-one relationship 
And I always say that it has to do, I have always said that real love is, it's like the non-judgment category where it's how much space that you give people to express themselves. So to me, with what we're saying is there's ele- certain elements are more expressive and fluid and I'm able to be more self-expressed with water energy types mm. than earth energy types. But then again, that comes down to like personal choice of how much you practice of non-judgment of giving people space to express themselves. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. <laughs> Do you ever suffer from the equivalent of writer's block? Sure. Not super often. I think I'm a really, really lucky person in the sense that I feel like I have enough ideas and projects to last me until the day I can't breathe anymore. (laughs) I'm one of those people and like, the race is on. How much can I do and get done of all these ideas? And it's so challenging because I have someone in my life that really struggles with not knowing what they want to create do. I feel like I'm exploding with like, and then we could do this. And if we don't do this, then we could do this. And if that doesn't work out, we're going to move on to this. And then we're going to get the whole neighborhood and it's all going to be fun. And like, I was definitely that kid on the block. You know what I mean? I was like the organizer. I was like, we have things to do. And it's, I mean, it's also like my ultimate frustration, right? Because sometimes I'm like, Oh, that's a big project. I just finished it. You know, it's like I just finished my store and it's like going great. And, you know, it's successful and all that stuff. And then I'm like, mm, pretty much done with that now. And how are we going to move on to this career? And like I take on really big, big dreams and then I attempt them, which is stressful. And so sometimes I wish that I could bring a little bit of that down and didn't have that like that feeling The more I get to experience, I do kind of like tone that down and I can sort of pick the projects that are more important to me. Mm -hmm. But my brain is constantly like, well, let's make this. This product doesn't exist. And well, everybody needs this click body painting pin because that's not on the market, you know. But do I need to actually see all those projects through? No, I need have to sort through the box and be like, what is really meaningful for me that I create and put in the world that I like? I don't have to make everything. And then I have I have people in my life that it's like, they just, I'm like, okay, do you like this? Do you like this? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, ah. So I think <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, you know, I've, I don't suffer from that. If I do get into a space where I'm like, hmm, what do I want to make next as far as like physical paintings? I just like go in there and start doing some weird shit and throwing some stuff down and being like, and then I kind of will find a little groove to get into it. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think I suffer from that a lot Mm -hmm. because I've got a lot of creative projects in every area of my life. I'm always challenging that. I don't know how I got that, but I did. And I know other people don't get it, which is tough. Mm -hmm. That's got to be tough. It looks tough. It looks tough from the outside looking at it. It's like, wait, you don't know what you want to do for a living? How is it even possible? I've got like 16 careers lined up, but this one doesn't work out. Have you found any good ways to inspire your own creativity? <laughs> I feel like life has really handed me a lot of challenging elements at an early age. That those, <laughs> those, 
those are pretty stacked up on the wall that I feel pretty good. Uh, I feel like we're locked and loaded here yeah. on a lot of information to dismantle and think about that are very inspirational. Sure. Yeah, yeah. My family is a, a leading inspiration in many ways Yeah. Um, to understand more about myself and human beings. And, and so the creativity I do is really just I'm there just processing understanding some of that stuff and some stuff I'll probably never understand or some stuff maybe I will. And when I'm 87, just right as the light goes out, I was like, ah, I get it now. You know? Ah, that was what I, I knew it the whole time. I don't have that. And I also, you know, referring to my friends that were artists when I was 18, they are like that as well. I think I got it from like a learned behavior from them that it was okay to just have an insane amount of ideas and be a little bit of a Mad Max and like never accomplish like even just a third, you know, just like not even in the game with the amount of ideas. And so it's fun to be around people like that, that are big dreamers. And I try to have big dreams, but also try to be practical about what it is that I'm, I'm breaking off to actually do. So I think I did do a lot of projects that, on my wheels a little bit because I had anxiety of not being able to accomplish enough. And now that I'm like this ripe age of 40, I take my time to choose what I really want to take on, which is cool. This is the coolest thing about getting older that nobody tells you is like you just really give a shit less. And it's so cool because then you can kind of like chill out like you're more happy with yourself. I mean, unless you're like having one of those midlife crises right now, though, because that could be happening for you, in which case you probably didn't create what you wanted to create in the first half of your life and you're looking down the barrel of like well I might have 40 more good years left so what do I want to do with the second half of the ball game so but yeah that's my experience I've got I've got tons of motivation humanity's motivating I mean even if I don't ever go to another country or participate with my family that much more just watching the world itself politics and religion and pandemics and you know all the things that are happening it's inspiring just observe that and create from that and you talked about two sides of the coin earlier and then we think back to your childhood trauma yes obviously it was horrible experiences that you had to go through but on the other side it's inspired all this creativity and passion and helped you really find your true calling yeah I think it was my will to just resist that level of control of that religion, of my people. I really believe that my father's abuse came from him being suppressed and not being able to be self-expressed and accepted for that self-expression. And I think it drove him mad. And I think seeing other people that were very self-expressed, he very quickly wanted to control and suppress. It's like, if I don't get to do it, you don't get to do it. I think not being able to express yourself creatively is can cause a lot of self-pain and harm. I got really lucky with the death of my older sister because it's almost like when you have one of those really, really bad breakups, not that like death, I mean, it's a loss, right? So any kind of like dramatic loss at that level that tears you to pieces, the benefits to that are when you come out on the other side of it, if you do, some people don't, but if you come out on the other side of it, there is a little bit of invincibility that sort of happens where you're just like, you know, you get in that next relationship and you're like, "Mm, a little bit more fuck it in your system. You're like, 
I don't give a <laughs> shit if this guy likes me. I done been through all crying on the bathroom floor. Listen, let's everybody relax. Yeah. So you just have less care, like, you know, the expectation of where you're putting your feelings in somebody else's hands. So it sounds like a lot of what was challenging about that community you grew up in was the control, was the feeling of you don't have choice over your decisions or the way that you want to explore your consciousness. And really that you would not be socially accepted if you weren't these ways, which I think everyone feels that way, whether you're from a a religion or just like a certain type of family group, the pressures of society to stay in those bounds. I think all all those things can be considered as control. Mm -hmm. So as you made your way into the metaphysics world and you're subsequent spiritual journey were psychedelics a factor in on that journey for me i didn't have a super positive experience with doing psychedelics because when i started experimenting with drugs i was around 18 and i had just been able to break free of of the jail that i had been raised in with so much like pain and abuse and uh, death that it was just stacked against me. So I don't think I was looking to kill myself or anything like that, even though I had heavy depression and and had those thoughts. I very much felt defeated that before I even started, I was like, I have these like really big goals and ideas and I'll never be able to accomplish them. I always felt that way at that age. And so I really, I met these three artists and they did drugs and, you know, sold drugs or whatever, weed and whatever they were experimenting with as 18-year-olds do. Mm -hmm. And it didn't have a positive effect for me because the way that my energy had been programmed at that time, I didn't know how to control the energy I had. I didn't, I just had no tools. So to put drugs on top of that accelerated the situation to become way worse (laughs) it just accelerated paranoia more fear less self-expression it was it just went from bad to worse Mm -hmm. so it didn't really do anything i mean the one thing psychedelics taught me was don't do drugs (laughs) (laughs) it was like no 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 no. you should uh not do that because Mm -hmm. i wasn't well enough the other thing is, is that I learned many years later about auric fields and the in- layers of the energy of a person and how it kind of can blow open and it, it, it make things porous that you are attracting lower vibration elements if you are a lower vibration element, right? Like, so if you drink, if you're drunk every day, you're probably going to attract some other low vibrating shit. So for me, that's what was happening. I think I attracted a lot of entities and things like that that attached to my auric field that I later had removed. I started reading and getting into metaphysics and stuff. And so I started becoming aware that it was present in my energy field. Mm -hmm. And I would wake up from my dreams and feel this dark cloud of energy that Mm -hmm. would be attached to different parts of my body. Mm -hmm. And that I would be sort of consciously choosing to detach them. So that's when I was like sort of waking up later from the effects of things that had happened so many years before. So I didn't have a positive experience with it because, and then I, I, we did all the things we did all the things, all the things that's what kids do. You experiment. And and again, the cards were just stacked against me. Uh, There's also an element that I've described that I feel that I almost wanted to run the car into the brick wall to kind of shatter all of the pieces so I could put everything back together the way I wanted it rather than what was currently 
you know, my course and my path of life. Mm -hmm. So the benefit of that was that it's like when you fuck up so bad that it's like, well, I might as well uh, go for these really insane goals that I'm probably not going to accomplish. Like, what's the harm in doing that now, right? Because you've, like, royally fucked everything up that you were so trying to, like, not let people see and protect that level of pain or hardship. So there, I got some bonuses out of it, but I don't think I had any positive effects because I don't think I was in the space at that age. And then now understanding like my energy and my spirit, I really absorb when other people like smoke weed or are on mushrooms or on acid and I feel it. I am mm-hmm. readily there. I'm like, I'm in it. I, it. It lands for me the same way. I feel like I'm having some of the same experiences. I feel like I'm floating in a room. I'm So I'm having a spiritual experience, even though I didn't personally take it myself. So I don't know if that's just like a residual of like, I tried it. So my Fork field is open to that. You know, I'm not really sure how it all works because I'm not a scientist, but um, (laughs) I just feel like I think there's some really, really cool stuff. I mean, had I had done it, I've gone back later and tried to test the waters with some things. And I don't know if there's just too much cell memory from that younger period of time. I don't have any positive experiences Mm -hmm. when I've gone back years later to dabble with it. It just doesn't land for me as something that's... That's the way that I need to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not saying it's not. Alex Gray, the artist that we both really like, mm-hmm. obviously <laughs> it works for him. I'm not against it. I have a, in the artist world, musician world, like do whatever you want if it works for you. I don't think it worked. I think it was just because of the circumstance and how yeah. it was all presented at the time. Though. And that is. A really important story. I I hadn't actually heard that experience before, so I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And uh, it's something that I think can get lost in the modern conversation around psychedelics is there's a lot of promising research being done and a lot of positive experience, but there's also stories like yours that were not so positive and that I think really reinforces the importance of having a good mindset going into it, knowing what you're going to experience and also being in the right setting where you're with people who know what they're doing or have had this experience before. Yeah. And I think part of the problem for me with the war on drugs is that it treats all these illicit quote-unquote substances as one and the same. And so it creates this culture of party culture of, Mm. oh, these are all the illegal drugs, so we're going to try them. And you don't understand the nuances between which and what each can do. And psychedelics are very powerful substances. And for for people who still have emerging brains that haven't been fully formed, I mean, they they can definitely uh, be not the best experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I first arrived to Colorado, there was somebody petitioning on the street at like an art fair or festival or something about legalizing psychedelics. And I was like, absolutely not. And he was like shocked, you know, cause I definitely looked like a person that would sign that. <laughs> and I was like, we here in America do not have the mental health structure to support that decision mm-hmm. of that law. And, That makes me sad because had there been a place for me to go to, I needed to go to it. Well, let's put it that way. Like I definitely disassociated from reality. I had a a long struggle back to realizing reality from non-reality. I mean, like you couldn't even ask me my name. Like, yeah, it was, I was like gone, gone. Right. Do you remember how much you took and what it was? 
So really it was a combination of, of doing drugs over that couple of years from okay. like 18 to 21. Mm-hmm. So those years, my boyfriend was a drug dealer at the time. He was also one of the three artists that I described, and he was a great artist. And his experience with, you know, smoking weed made him go into the zone and create more awesome artwork. So I wanted to be on that. It just created more and more paranoia and more and more self-destructive behavior unknowingly. Like, I, it just made me way into imbalance. Like, I, I already couldn't handle my sensitivity of emotion of what I had been experiencing my whole life at, at my family's house. You know, I was very always kind of like a happy-go-lucky person, but then it was sort of like this was the inside was being torn down, and I think drugs were a, a big part of accelerating that process. So, you know, I don't know if it's, it's good or bad that all of that happened, but I'm really glad I didn't die. That's cool. And I'm really, you know, because it could have been, I mean, really bad things happened. So I think just the whole process of it, I think I was looking for something fun and good. And I think they were too. You know, the guy that I dated was like, of course, those were his intentions. It wasn't anything other than that. And the other people that I were with, it was like, yeah, this is fun. Like, this is what young kids all across the world do. They didn't also know how to handle what was happening to me. And I certainly didn't. And my family, obviously, no. So I wish that there was a healthcare structure that they could have been like, well, okay, she had GHB. She had, I don't even know all, I think, God, maybe that was PCP. Like, that kid not that's probably not good. <laughs> what else did we do? Like you dip the thing in embalming fluid. What is that? What is that? It's it's not good for you. I'm I'm certain <laughs> of it. I'm, I'm, I'm like totally certain of that. And you like fall into a K-hole kind of deal. And I just remember like waking up out of the K-hole. And like my friend JT was sitting there and he was like kind of looking at me like, are you okay? Like everything good or whatever. And I just remember being like, I'm going to go outside and be alone for a while. <laughs> like... I mean, of course, that's what we were, we were experimenting. It was all in good fun, but I was not in the place that I came from a place that I, I was looking for escapism through it. And it just didn't have the same effect for me that it did other people because I had a lot going on. So those are things. Uh, recently, there's a girl that was a roommate of mine in Texas, and she was like, I'm going to come to Colorado and visit you. And I was like, cool, cool. Like, of course, you can stay at my house. And so she arrives, and I immediately knew what had happened to her because I had been in the same state that she had been with. She had taken too much of whatever. It had gone too far. She was disassociated. She had a hard time understanding and putting things together in reality, not reality, extreme paranoia. And I was like, how much did you take? She's like, we did mushroom. She had a hard time telling me because it was like she's so – I was like, I'd be knowing all the things where you at right now. So she had the same effect. And, and it turns out she's like, I'm gay and I haven't told my family. And she's got this big struggle and she's got this, all this resistance and negative energy. And then you put drugs on that. It's not going to be a great combo. And so I see this a lot actually. And so I do think that drugs can have a really awesome effect. And like you said, in the right setting with some guides and some things like that. And maybe I will do, I think there's one drug that I want to do. It's um, is it DMT? Mm-hmm. That one mm-hmm. with it's like, like ayahuasca, but you smoke it. Yeah, and it doesn't last very long. Yeah, exactly. Is that the one? That's that like, one sounds like super cool. I'd mm-hmm. like to do that in the right environment mm-hmm. with like maybe a shaman and stuff like that. 
And then also living in places like all around the world and Amsterdam and, you know, Los Angeles and seeing the effects of drugs and having my experience. It's like, do I really need that to become the person I want to be on the planet? I do love wine. I drink too much. <laughs> but even that, you know, I have to be really careful because I use it as an escapism element. It can be used as a stimulant for creativity. And I also never want to rely on that and have it become a crutch for my creativity. It's really valuable that I can go in even when I'm feeling stagnant of creating something like writer's block, that I can just get in there and be like, bah, and just throw paint everywhere and get back <laughs> into it and not have to use a stimulant to do it. Uh-huh. I don't want to rely on things like that to be able to be self-expressed because I don't want my art to become synthetic. But, you know, here's the other thing to ease their own because my friends that make amazing murals and all of that, they love to smoke weed and that gets them going. That's great. Do whatever. I think different drugs have different effects for different people. That's the, that's the real gig there. And so for me, smoking weed, not my gig. Do not want give me a martini, this is happening. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and and then you give some people a martini and they become a fucking nightmare. Don't give them a martini. Give them weed. So it, I think each, there's just different energy and element types. Have you heard of this guy, the human design system? I forget the guy that created his name. But anyways, there's this thing called human design system. And he talks about the way people drink in energy their body computes it, and then their output. He kind of breaks down different energy types, sort of like earth, wind, water, fire, you know, that whole deal. But it's more of an intricate system Mm. he's come up with. And it's fascinating because I think this correlates with elements, outside elements, drugs, alcohol, that you can use for a certain amount for it to be good and not, you know what I mean? Like, I can definitely see... Mm the relationship between different energy types and how you compute and process energy. So for me, yeah, I mean, do I, I, I'm such a lucid dreamer since I was a young, Mm. young age. Do I really need LSD? Uh You know, maybe, maybe not. I have never done LSD. I've done mushrooms. We did whatever the thing you dip in embalming fluid. That was probably (laughs) not good for you. Those whippets, those were always fun. Cocaine, alcohol, not a lot of cocaine. I don't really, a lot of people get can get really addicted to that for me. I think I'm already such a high dopamine, high energy person mm-hmm. that it doesn't land for me addictive. But I could see if you were a low dopamine person that you would want that in your life. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. But then also since that experience, since I'm young, I'm very, very cautious with that kind of stuff. Nicotine's probably my biggest addiction. Mm. I think that's because me and my sister started smoking cigarettes when my older sister died. And we used it as like a bonding, coping thing. So it has like this positive element to it, but it's like horrible for you. So I've slowly detached myself from that and and don't smoke very often. But I like it. Each person is different of of what, you know, you have got this big opening that you're going through. And maybe these Mm -hmm. things are really cool to stimulate your mind to, like, push you forward in that creative space or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have a lifetime of stories that I could probably never even get out. Like, I don't think I need any more stimulants. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, the story tells the story's story at this point. Like, (laughs) how do we get it all in a book? Like, it doesn't, it's going to be the next Harry Potter. So let's... 
I yeah. think that's a book that needs to be written. We can all agree on that. Dude, I mean, my aunt was, I, I was talking to this about my aunt, and she was, like, scared about what was going to be in the book. And I was like, yeah, yeah, there's probably going to be some real scary shit in there. <laughs> like, even I think about some of the shit that's happened, I'm like, fucking hell. Like, and then I, you know, speaking of the person that I dated that's the artist, and I had uh, an experience where uh, a person has a flashback, which I had to call my therapist to figure out what it was. And I had a flashback to that time when all that drugs and stuff was, I was taking all the drugs and stuff. And like I said, a lot of bad things happened and I was like drug napped. And I basically was having new memories of the experience because I was drugged. So like it's stored as trauma, but you don't remember it. I had a flashback and I was having new memories and I was like really spiraling. I was like emotionally really struggling to like not be sobbing all day. Like I was really having, I didn't know that it was called, it's called a flashback anyways. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the guy that I had dated from that time period. And I said, what happened? What happened to that? The person that took me, what I needed details. Like I needed the story of what happened because no one, we didn't talk about it. We were kids. Like nobody knew how to handle that kind of crazy shit. So he like tells me all the details and I'm like, almost hyperventilating. I'm like, we got to take a break. I got to go to the phone. This is like so much information for me to process, you know, the whole thing. And he's like, wait, 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 don't, let's not forget the people that have been through this kind of stuff. Haven't lived through it. You've not only, and to come out on the other side, the way in which I have and the things that I've accomplished and done, given those really heavy experiences, it was cool that he made sure he slipped that in at the end. And I was like, oh yeah, right. I'm basically the president, you know, like from coming out of all that shit. You're just like, I want the presidency. Like yeah. I'm, it's going to be fine. Like, yeah. I think I look back to that time period of how much I dealt with and struggling on how to reassociate back into, in the world because of drugs and do, you know, stay focused and create a career and stuff like that and mm -hmm. do all the stuff that I wanted and become an artist. That was obviously the top goal that given those experiences like yeah i've got i've got shelves and shelves of motivation like we're not gonna run out of <laughs> we're not gonna run out of inspiration anytime soon we got tony robbins motivation skills up in here if he needs somebody to back him up i got it like, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> so. <laughs> one thing i gotta go back to you mentioned a little earlier that during this whole time period when you're doing a lot of drugs that a dark entity attached itself to you mm -hmm. and that you subsequently had it removed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was just would love to hear about that whole story. <laughs> more, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you want more, uh, yeah. more, more crazy shit. shit. Yeah, exactly. Keep going with the crazy Keep shit. Going. So back to the it. crazy. Okay. So basically the way that I understand it and that your org field is all these layers of different vibrations of stuff. And mm -hmm. it sort of correlates to like, you know, those chakras. Uh -huh. And those things can get so disproportionate and like unbalanced that it becomes porous and there's like holes mm -hmm. that things that of lower vibration can attach. Mm -hmm. And so there's different dimensions, but entities of different vibrations can attach and then they essentially like keep your vibration down. And it's by sheer will and power of choice that you're able to raise your consciousness in whichever way you choose. And those things can naturally detach just from you raising your vibration, your natural vibration. Like they, those 
energy levels and fields around your body, your auric fields start to balance and have higher vibrations. And so those things can't attach anymore. So it's safe to say that anybody that's ever been depressed might have some stuff floating around or things like that. But the problem is, is that depression of like a lost one or a pet or things that you're going through, these are natural parts of life. And they're like a wave where a person is too far down in a wave, whether maybe you're born with certain chemicals that you have a chemical imbalance or anything like that. That's just your predisposition of genetics has you be that way and you need medication or there are waves and things that you can get in that you're in that low part for a long period of time. And there's no judgment there. That's just like all our bodies are built different. The entities, they're different types of entities. I didn't learn about some of these entities until later, but I was in LA and I would have this thing that would attach, I would wake up and it would be attached to my head or kind of like the back of my neck. I could see it. Uh And it was like a dark moving big cloud, like um, human formation. Like it was like a body, but Mm. it was not specific. It didn't have like arms and legs, like specifically. It just was like body shape like. And it would be hovering and floating and I could feel it physically pulling energy from Mm. my body through my head or the back of my scalp. So I went, there's this girl that I worked with. She was one of my clients and she was like, you should go see this guy. He's like an energy healer type. And I'm like down for all the things for healing in LA. And so I get there and I really believe at this point, like what type of energy he work he did was almost like a version of like an exorcism Mm. because shit got weird. It was definitely, you felt, I felt kind of hypnotized and out of my body. And I felt that he could see different layers and entities of my, of my own energy and spirit that I couldn't. So I did feel safe with this person. I was scared, but there was a safety there that I felt like this person was of light. And we did some prayer stuff. And then at one point he like tipped my head back and he like had me like yell or do something of that nature where it was like moving this energy up and out. Mm. And it was wild. And I remember leaving out of there being like, what the fuck was that? Like, I don't even know. Did that do something? Did that not do something? I don't know. what. And so this entity did return, but it was a long time later. And then again, and I was still really studying, of course, miracles and prayer. And I was like really into like all the good high vibes. And so I did notice it again. It it showed up for a little while and then it just never came back. Mm. So I think it came back a couple of times or whatever, but I think I wasn't as open to it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then fast forward to several years later, Uh, There was a book that this girl wrote. I cannot think the name of it, but she describes different entities and what they are and what they do. Mm. And so the one that attaches to your scalp is sexual trauma. Mm. And that I have that from during the time period that I did a lot of drugs when I was drug napped. So, and the way she described the entity, the way it felt, the way it looked like, just every aspect mm-hmm. about it. I was like, holy shit, that's what that was. Mm-hmm. It's probably 10 years in between me having that done and that experience mm-hmm. of like coming to know that it was even there. Like in my dream, like I would wake up out of my dreams. Like I would physically come awake 
knowing that this thing was happening. And I think that's because my consciousness was getting higher vibrations. And so I was getting present to what was going on in my org field and with my body and healing myself in my mind. So I was aware of it. And then just like anything else, it's like when you're ready, this person came available. Like I actually went and had that entity removed. I didn't even know it was an entity. I knew I was having that experience. I also didn't know that's what he was removing. Mm. And then I realized that, oh, it only returned one or maybe three more times. And then I never had the experience again after that, after seeing that guy. Mm. And then 10 years later, I read in a book what it was. So there's all different types of entities out there. There's also, now we're talking about different dimensions. And again, there's so many people with tons of knowledge of this. Dimensions that I'm familiar and aware of are the angelic realm, the ancestral realm, the entities, the low vibrating entities, stuff floating around the room. And those are kind of it. Those are the three I know about. (laughs) I feel like I've seen angels, like light beings walk into rooms. And I went to speak, I think it was like a seminar or class or something with Reverend Micah Beckwith. And he acknowledged the two beings come into the room. And I didn't understand it at the time. And then when people would go around and hold the microphone, those beings would come next to you and hold your vibration up. Wow. Right? So you didn't go into like your trauma story or your low vibration pattern. It would be for acceleration of like the vibration of the class. Wow, interesting. He also kept people... Who's this? Reverend Michael Beckwith. Okay, that's your Yeah, the right agape. Yeah. Well, what he, does agape mean? Probably nirvana of some sort, I'm okay. guessing. But his church is a New Thought church, or maybe it was essentially classified as a New Thought church, which is what Mile High Church over here is. And they combine all religions. Ernest Holmes, they base a lot of their work off of Ernest Holmes. And he's definitely like, to me, he shows up as like a Christian-based, but yet philosophy, psychology, human behavior and choice, power of choice, all of that good stuff kind of wrapped into one. And the practice of the mind and how to create what you want to create, essentially. So yeah, his class. And I think he's even just listening to his live stream church class. It's just, it's great. It's like he's he's all high vibes. He's definitely all high vibes. It's pretty cool. So in his class... I felt those beings come up and uphold my energy that I wouldn't dip down into like a trauma story. And that was pretty profound, pretty cool. Fun stuff, a lot of fun stuff. stuff. Yeah. Well, Casey, I think that's a great place to stop. (laughs) High vibes all day, I love it. (laughs) All right, man. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to Casey for sharing her story and some of the twists and turns she's experienced in her life's journey. I can imagine that final discussion on transdimensional beings in particular raised a lot of eyebrows. Personally, six months ago, I would have totally dismissed the idea of transdimensional beings out of hand, but today that's certainly not the case. One of the reasons this topic is hard for people to grasp is not just that it lies so so far outside the realm of accepted conventional physics, but also that visualizing entities from higher or lower dimensions is inherently difficult. One of the best resources I've found for this is from physicist Michio Kaku's book, Hyperspace. 
So in his book, he asks you to visualize a two-dimensional human being living on a large sheet of paper known as Flatlandia. If you were to draw a circle around this 2D figure, he or she would now be effectively in jail. However, you as a three-dimensional person could pull the Flatlander out of the circle into the third dimension. Now, if you were to flip the Flatlander over in three dimensions, then put him back into the jail, his heart would now appear on the right side and all internal organs would have been reversed. This transformation would, of course, be a medical impossibility for someone living strictly in Flatland. And I'll plan to post these uh, images from the book on uh, our Instagram page to help you visualize this as well. Now, the conversation gets even more complicated when you consider extraterrestrial beings who fall into a separate category of entity altogether from transdimensional beings. ETs are biological life forms living in our same universe who are bound to the same three dimensions of space and fourth dimension of time as humans. However, CSETI, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, would argue that the ETs who are able to visit Earth are sufficiently advanced technologically such that they're able to travel to Earth transdimensionally through the unified field of consciousness. And that they're not constrained by the speed of light, which dominates our current conception of interstellar travel because they're able to travel transdimensionally. Because of their level of technological advancement, it can be hard for humans having a supernatural experience to discern whether they're interacting with a transdimensional, an extraterrestrial, or an other entity altogether. And I know that this can all sound like far-fetched ideas out of a science fiction movie, so to make things even more esoteric, Here's another thought exercise to help you think through alternatives to our conception of space and time. Imagine that you're a two-dimensional amoeba. Now, you're a flat amoeba living on a kitchen table, and one day, some being of which you have no real understanding places what we would know to be a, a completed Rubik's Cube down on top of you. This Rubik's Cube has the red side face down. And so to you, the amoeba, all of existence is now red. Red is the core essence of your reality. Then assume that several days later, this being picks up the cube and places it back down, yellow side facing down. Now your conception of reality is yellow. All existence is yellow. We live in the time of yellow and the time of red was before. And it's not that your perception of space and time is incorrect. It's just that it's incomplete. And then as you zoom out and recognize the amoeba is on a table in a house built on a, pla built on a planet that is called Earth, orbiting a sun in a solar system, which is a part of a galaxy that's called the Milky Way, you start to recognize just how much more complicated this cosmos is relative to the everyday existence of your life as a 2D amoeba. And so extending the analogy to human beings, perhaps we face these similar limitations on our current perception of reality, just on a different scale. And that maybe it's time we as a human species eat a slice of humble pie and recognize that we could be much more amoeba in this cosmic drama than we care to admit.